0: this is concepts where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world phil shea and steve rose my name is phil shea i am writing for makeaskilljack.com and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com
1: steve My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction.
0: Welcome to Pros and Concepts. Welcome. Today, Steve's going to be taking the charge on this one. It's been quite a while, I think, since we last recorded, and that one still hasn't been put out yet at the time of us recording this. But we're getting back in the swing of things. Steve, what has held us up a bit? Do you want to address that a little bit? Because we've (laughs)
1: continued to take more and more time. I actually don't even know. Perhaps a lot of your moving was part of it?
0: No. On my end, it was because I kind of got into a "Ah, who cares kind of phase because I was feeling kind of overwhelmed by things, having to find work, which was very frustrating. And kind of like imposter syndrome, I think a lot of it was like... What do I know about anything? On your side, though, I was thinking it was more family stuff, but maybe you don't want to talk about that.
1: Family work has been busy. You know, around the new year, people like to start making changes in their lives. And I'm part of the change making business, I guess. I suppose that's one way of putting it. One way of putting it, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about third places, not to be confused with third spaces, which I kept saying them interchangeably because they kind of sound very similar in concept, but they're very different. Third space theory is actually to do with like post-colonial theory, and third places is something entirely different. What is it, Steve?
1: Yeah, this is a sociological concept, so really within my wheelhouse. It's called third places, and it's a concept developed by urban sociologist Ray Oldenburg and he defines the third place.
0: Okay, so wait, wait, give me the shorthand you just gave me. We should probably just give that so that we can keep it clear. You're saying, how do you remember the difference between place and space?
1: Yeah, I guess I remember that it's third place by thinking of like bronze medallion. <laughs> ah, you got third place. And so we're gonna have to keep that in mind we keep mixing up the place and space. And so it's defined as a place of refuge other than the home or workplace where people can regularly visit and commune with friends, neighbors, Coworkers or strangers. So it's the third place because Ray Oldenburg, the developer of this concept, defines the first place as the home, the second place as work, and the third place as kind of these spaces of leisure or leisure where you can kind of just relax, socialize with people, acquaintances. And so examples include cafes, coffee shops, bookstores, bars, hair salons, and we can't forget bowling alleys. Which is a relevant example when we talk about Robert Putnam, who wrote a book actually called Bowling Alone, a classic sociological piece of work that focuses on the decline of bowling leagues as an example of how we are doing less together and the decline of civil society in general. That's a small part of his book.
0: Oh, it's like a throwaway line that you almost miss. The thing is, like, everyone, whenever they mention that book, they always just reference that one thing because of the title. But then it's like he is super in depth to the point that you kind of have it just wash over you at some point because it's like this area goes went worse. This area went worse. This area and just keeps going.
1: Right. And so there's two sociologists that are really key in today's discussion of third places. It's Ray Oldenburg, who's the developer of the concept, but Robert Putnam, who really traced this kind of decline of civil society and places of gathering and kind of this bridging where we can meet people who are not within our immediate social circles and he calls that social capital we had an episode on social capital in the past and so there's going to be a lot of overlap with that but what the general argument is for robert putnam is that we are getting less and less social capital as we kind of keep to ourselves more in our private spaces of entertainment the television was a big one that he referenced
0: i'm going to to step in there first and say what social capital is. This is succinct definition, thank you Wikipedia, is the networks of relationships among people who live and work in a particular society, enabling that society to function effectively. It's kind of similar to workplaces where there's a lot of stuff that's not written down, there's procedures that are just accepted among the social atmosphere there, that when one person leaves, it might not be replaced. It's just this kind of nebulous greasing of every mechanism of society, basically.
1: Greasing, I like that. Greasing the wheels of society, and really the heart of community social vitality are things like this and the grassroots of democracy are in places like this. Robert Putnam focuses on clubs, organizations, religion, volunteering. But Ray Oldenburg, he really focuses on just the actual physical spaces, the design of these places. And it goes into like urban planning and it's relevant. It's very specifically kind of a practical concept. We can critique zoning regulations and we can talk about that and how residential communities... You can't have like a coffee shop in a subdivision because of zoning regulations. And what that does is it really puts us further away from common places of gathering, like Coffee shops. Alienation, basically. Yeah. And so we all live in suburbs that are just single family home places where you have to take a car to get somewhere. And then when you go there, you're not like a regular. You're just popping into Starbucks to grab your coffee and leave. You don't really get to know your neighbors. You don't really get to know the people in your community. And it really becomes just an extra focus on work and home. And Robert Putnam talks about that, where our work has become really more of a focus for our extra social gathering. And we see that in the way we talk about work and like it's my family at work and then if you get fired from your job it's like you lose your family and that's a real problem yeah
0: your family just ostracizes you it's
1: putting all of your eggs in one basket really
0: that's a red flag from a lot of people that say if a company says that you're like family then you should run away because they're probably going to try to abuse the emotional side to get you to do stuff but like okay so this seems related to a bunch of things like one i can think about the history of how suburbs came up two i think we could paint a picture of what it would be like to live in like a place that would be more desirable because like right now it might not be easy to imagine And three, to do with telecommuting and working remote. Which one do you want to jump on first? The suburbs thing. Okay, so suburbs, if I remember my history correctly in North America, they actually were a bunch of land developers. They saw there was a city there and they're like, ah, we can make a lot of money if we were to sell housing nearby to this. But it was super inconvenient to get there. So what they ended up doing was they bought a huge chunk of land and they, I think, if I remember correctly, they developed kind of trams, like railways, pedestrian railways to carry back and forth from the suburbs to the city, which was nice for a bit. But then I think we went far more car-centric in North America since then. But it was basically land developers who were kind of lazy and just wanted to zone it purely for maximum profit, just to sell all these houses and wash their hands of it. And that's what we did. And so we end up with this kind of monocrop, kind of stupid idea of just a bunch of ugly cookie-cutter houses, all in tandem with people you may not even know that live next to you.
1: Wait a minute, are you describing my street? I'm not describing your street
0: because you're in a small town, and like you said, it's walkable, like 15 minutes to downtown. The
1: best of both worlds, because I do live on a street that kind of is like that. It's just kind of similar homes altogether without kind of shops right within the vicinity. Luckily, I live in a small town, which I could walk to the center of downtown from where I am. And so it has a small town feel. What do you mean small town feel? It is a small town. <laughs> right. It is a small town. It doesn't just feel like a small town. It, it is one. Yeah. So although it feels like I'm kind of in a suburb, I'm really not. I think the suburb you were referring to are things like around Toronto.
0: Major cities, basically. Our audience is probably primarily American. Where I think like certain places I think you were talking about Detroit recently that there was literally no way to walk from where your relative lived to
1: like a shop or something you had to take a car there is a way there but there's a lot of spots around there where you wouldn't want to be walking that's for sure
0: yeah like it's definitely car centric we've chosen cars over people a lot of, of the time
1: Detroit's like the, the primary example of car centric city motors well, I mean it was <laughs> the, it was
0: a motor city but the roads are not very good I'll say that but I, I've had people push back on the idea that like okay let's back it up first the thing about cars being freedom, but I have to work up to that. Okay, so three things, one was the history, second was, okay, so what these areas might look like would be like, you have a bakery across the street from your house, so maybe like a small strip of like a bakery, a greengrocer, maybe, with selling fresh produce there, and maybe a cafe in a suburb, let's say, or like in an area, it would be mixed use. So like being in the city without the traffic and without all the noise, in your small town, you could have like a couple small shops there that would be frequented a lot. And if you think about it, the foot traffic would be better, especially if we have cities that are more walkable, you don't need a car to get around. You can just go to these places and support local businesses and have a nice environment where you can congregate with your friends at night. Even like a pub, for example, I guess would be nice. I was thinking about the restrictions. I think anything that causes too much noise late at night would be annoying. Like a club, for example, would be a bad idea.
1: Yeah, that's the thing about how America was developed. The kind of bar and, and pub culture is very different than in Europe. The impact it has on drunk driving is very real. Like if you have to drive from your suburb out to this bar out in the middle of a busy street and then you have to drive all the way back to your suburb, Like people are going to still drink and it's unfortunate, but yeah, the rates of drunk driving are going to be way up.
0: The other problem though is that the way the laws are kind of set up is like you must take a cab or somebody must drive you because if you drive, that's illegal obviously and should be, but then if you're drunk at all, depending on how visible it is I guess, in public, they can charge you with public drunkenness so it's like you have to pay some way to get home. So I don't know if like walkable cities will make that easier in general because like as long as you're not belligerently drunk, I suppose that would be line but i guess that's the way of getting around it
1: yeah and that's one of the features actually ray describes in an article called our vanishing third places that walkability is a key feature of an ideal city where businesses are not just chain but they're also independently owned primarily and he describes a mysterious chemistry that emerges in these third places you can't create it you can set the conditions for it to arise so there's kind of these ingredients that he describes it has to be local so somewhere where you can get to walking ideally under 15 minutes walking or biking yep and independently owned and arranged in a way where you're not just going into a cubicle like you can go into a like a booth like a booth versus like a cafe that has open table arrangements, they're very different. And so the space has to be conducive to chance encounters and kind of mixing of people.
0: Standing tables seem like they'd be better for that because then you have a chance of talking. Like I always found that difficult, the pub style of like talking to strangers because they're all sitting at a table and even if there's an empty chair, you're not just going to walk up and pull it out and be like, oh, hey, like because you're intruding on the entire group as opposed to just speaking to one or two people who turn away from the group.
1: Yeah, booths are super awkward for that. You can't walk up to a booth because everyone's staring at you and it's interesting because I literally went to a local independently owned cafe over the weekend and what happened there I had a chance encounter with an old friend from high school Ryan oh that's who it was yeah. so these things do happen and he came up to our table and it was not awkward like if it was a booth it would perhaps be a little bit of a barrier where it's more like you want to wave and keep walking but kind of the open environment encourages mixing now why is this a good thing we shouldn't be taking it for granted like we're talking about this as if it's a good thing and some people might be saying, well, what if I want my privacy and I like living? I don't want people to bother me. And I, I don't care about knowing my neighbors.
0: But this is one of those things that I think is writing terms what he wants versus needs. Like, say, Shrek, for example, is a classic example a lot of people give. He wants to be left alone in the swamp. He wants to just be completely isolated. But he needs connection with people. He needs this deeper connection and meaning in his life with other people, because that, that's what gives life meaning. And I think that that's a trend that I think we all kind of want. Like, I was talking to a friend about it, how I was saying at the gym, they kind of acknowledged me when. I come and go and I said I kind of find it annoying but then I realized like as time's gone on like I keep seeing the regular people over and over again so like I don't know their names they might know mine because I just check in but it's a little bit nice a little bit more social capital going on there and I think there's just this tendency to think you just want to be left alone and I mean it depends on like your life situation obviously if you're getting harassed a lot you probably don't want strangers talking to you but in general I think we we want community we're just so cut off from it at this point that we don't realize what it is or what it's like we want to have like a group of people that like yeah that can be gossip up in small towns and stuff like that. But generally, when something good happens to you or somebody in the community, the entire community can celebrate and people will support one another when they need it. Like the, the thing that we've lost so long ago that like I think our parents generation, the boomers, they are the ones that it kind of declined with. I don't know if I want to necessarily blame them because we've, we've talked a bit about that. We can touch on that in a bit about the relation to decadence. But in general, I think it's one of those things that, as I say, the richer you get, the more square footage you get per person, but the more alone you end up being. And like you can talk because you looked at this, the research on how Loneliness is deadly, right?
1: Oh, completely. It, it, and when you say wants versus needs, it's interesting because it's, it's like a need for nutrition. It's like, I don't want to eat my vegetables. Well, you kind of need your vegetables. Yeah. I want to
0: eat junk food all the time. Like, you want these things. I want to be
1: left alone. I want to be in my like secluded, sealed off house with my car that shuttles me to work and I never have to see another person. Oh, wouldn't that be nice?
0: But that's sleepwalking through life, right? <laughs> I
1: get in a little bit of a fantasy like that, being an introvert. But at the same time, because I'm like, oh, I'm super annoyed by small talk. I'm like, you know what, I should probably embrace this a little bit more because it it actually is kind of nice when you run into people.
0: Well, I mean, I think once you get good enough at small talk, not that I'm necessarily there all the time, it really depends on my mood. But once you're there, you basically end up kind of exploring things and you can make it more playful and just practice banter, right? Because like banter is, at least the definition I use, it's contentless conversation. You're not really talking about anything as small talk is, and you're just kind of making it playful and fun and like joking a bit.
1: I got to practice that. Yeah, because literally like all day... Hey, I'm having deep conversations. Yeah, it's difficult to break out of that mindset. Yeah, it's eh? like, oh, nice to meet you. So what's the deepest problem in your life right now? And let's talk about that. <laughs> it goes really Tell me what's eating your soul yeah, <laughs> Like literally one after another. So I'm like, small talk, who needs that? But we apparently need it because loneliness is deadly, as you said. And I want to reference the Harvard Grant study. It's actually a 75 year long longitudinal study, 75 years. It's still going, isn't it? It ended in 2014, I believe.
0: Well, the last I heard, they were still following like the grandchildren of the people that started it but
1: i think there's different iterations where they may be following up i don't know too much about it but they've followed a generation of people for 75 years and collected data on what really makes them the most happy really and they've correlated a ton of variables in terms of health fitness finances exercise smoking and people always say smoking is obviously bad for your health but guess what the grant study determined is just as bad for your health tell me if not worse tell me i need to know You already know. Loneliness. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was worse than one pack a day, right? Right, loneliness is deadlier than smoking. How do you quantify it? I always wonder about that, like loneliness, like one pack a day is equivalent to what degree of loneliness, I wonder. Self-reported
0: studies, like do you feel lonely or not? Because it is a bit more of a binary, like, or you could say, how often do you feel lonely? And then you can quantify it, I think, with other questions, like if you had a really bad day and you needed to talk to somebody, how many people could you turn to? And I think in America, I think the studies for that particular question was quite depressing. It was as depressing as the, if you had a financial shock, how likely would you be able to cushion a $500 expense? And both of those were like quite low. And a lot of people said they couldn't do it or they had one or nobody to talk to. I think one made a huge difference, but more than one obviously is better.
1: Yeah, yeah. Loneliness kills. It's on the rise.
0: Deaths of despair, right?
1: Yeah, deaths of despair. There's a ton of like content coming out, like YouTube channels of people making videos about having no friends. It's very really Yeah. There's a whole genre of content on the I have no friends. And they're not doing it like in terms of... Necessarily uh, complaining. They're actually like, if you're curious about what it's like to have no friends, this is my experience. And like, people actually talk about having no friends. And I talk to a lot of people that have no friends in my line of work. It's not uncommon.
0: Remind us what that is, given that people may not have been listening to us all along. I do counseling. He's a counselor specializing in addiction, right? Yes.
1: And in more of my work in the crisis type calls rather than kind of ongoing clients, people pop up quite frequently that have really no friends or perhaps even no family. And they live in a very, very isolated way. But that's often, you can see that among older people. But increasingly, it's becoming common among young people.
0: This reminds me of how like when you and I talk about in general, if you're a counselor, I think your perception of society is going to be a metric of the lowest people in terms of emotional stuff and those that can afford counseling. It's going to be a selection bias, not saying that you have it like super, super bad, but it's just this makes sense now that I think about it, because when we talk about how I'm for remote work and to me, I think that the time and expense saved in having to commute to work could be spent on recreating third places because like you're saying people are lonely. And I think this goes back what we were talking about, how work has since the loss of third places and the more isolation we have, work has come to fill all of our social needs and that seems ridiculous. I've had people argue stuff like, oh, people find their spouses at work. It's like, yeah, but people also get fired for harassment at work or get harassed out of their job. So is that really the place we want to be picking up? Like, maybe it's not the best place to matchmake or have
1: all your social needs filled? No, completely. Yeah, and and you see this complete movement in workplace culture of like, we're a family and like it's just, as we said before, should we be putting all of our social eggs in one basket and then tying it to our finances not necessarily
0: Oof, yeah and then if you say you make a social gaffe then you lose your finances and your and the states probably your health insurance as well like just everything it's just it's insane like you're so tied to the job and while this does benefit the industrialists the capitalists who are owning these jobs that's kind of why they do it like they even say stuff like we can't forgive student debt or like reduce student debt because that's one of our best recruiting tools said somebody in the military i forget i think it was a general and it's like, yeah, that's not a good thing. You know, that, that's a sign of a broken society that you have to coerce people into doing the basic functions of making the society function. Yeah.
1: No, exactly. And like these are things we don't think about every day. But as I was reading through the third spaces literature, reading Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, I was like, wow, this really is a problem.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny because like you have a PhD in sociology and I have a bachelor's in psychology. And yet I have been paying more attention to this and pointing it out to you. And you're kind of like hemming and hawing. And, eh, but then you've come around more recently on like mixed zoning. And I guess Putnam kind of drove home that like, yeah, we probably shouldn't have everything from work. But I don't know. What, what other things have you found your perspective has changed more recently
1: yeah i, I kind of knew them intellectually but like going over them again in my current life situation because when you go through as a student you're just like yeah yeah well you know it just yeah it washes over your you, social yeah. needs are being met let's just say as a student well actually that's a time when people
0: want to go back to right because there was a lot of third places in universities studying it's basically built to be social in um, a lot of ways
1: look at like residences when you stay in a residence there's common spaces they call it the lounge these usually a lounge where people can go to and the resident lounge is the perfect example of the third place coffee shops within the residences or eating areas lobbies study rooms. But this
0: is also why i like staying in hostels for times as well because in general it seems like the way we can force people to actually embrace socializing with others and like actually being interested is by basically unmooring them and putting them in a context where they don't know very many people because that's a commonality i see between hostels and university and how people complain about how when they move to new cities it's so difficult to meet people once people get in a groove they just clamp up and don't bother trying to meet people because again we're lacking these third places to facilitate that so i've had a lot of people complain about how they've moved to a new city for a new job and they have a hard time with that because it's impossible to meet people or other friends i've had that i've made as an adult who say it's impossible to make friends as adults which is kind of funny i hear that all the time
1: all the time yeah
0: and i found i've made a lot of friends through dating if you're good at just like transitioning that your situation is different yeah yeah, but also like a friend will throw a party and then you go. The thing is, I think a lot of the time we're so worn down and the city is so hard to traverse because like I was in Toronto, people throw a party. And if you just worked a full time job and we're working all week, you're like, you know, I, don't, I like I said, I'll go to this party, but I don't feel like it. Like Canadians are known for flaking, but I think it's not just us because I think we're just tired and it's just it's so difficult to get from point A to point B that it's like extra work to just go and socialize.
1: And there's a difference between a house party and a third place. I and mean, I wouldn't want them to be confused because that's what we're doing more of. And Robert Putnam talked about that bowling alone that we're having more kind of private gatherings inviting friends over for dinner dinner parties backyard barbecues that's different though
0: yeah because you will know 90 something percent of the people that are there although you did say that they were independently owned was one of the factors so it's not a business and it's not a place that people can just generally show up like i think i like the third place because if you're home and you're having a bad day and you don't really feel like doing anything and people just show up i guess it it can be nice but it can also be a burden because you feel like you have to entertain having a third place which is convenience because the part i'm criticizing about the house party is that it would take like an hour to get from point A to point B, whether you drive or take the subway or whatever, supposing that's an option. So it's far, it's not walkable. It's far, it's expensive. Yeah. If it was something nearby and you're like, you know, I, I just, I'm feeling a little bit low. I'm just going to go to the nearby cafe that I like, I know people. And if anybody's there, great. If not, I'll just read a book or something. Right. That's more ideal, right? Like it's not a huge task. Like if it takes you 30 to 50 minutes to get to someplace, then it's a big undertaking because the round trips to eat up a lot of your night.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah. And that's one of the factors Ray Oldenburg describes as a feature of a third place is it's a neutral ground so the occupants have... Sorry, is that Ray Oldenburg or is that Pete Myers? Pete Myers actually summarizes Ray Oldenburg's theory in his book, Going Home. And there's various features we can go over. But the first one being a neutral ground where there's little to no obligation to be there. So you're not tied to it. You can pop in, pop out. So a house party, there's an obligation if you say yes. And it's very Yeah, scheduled. and then if
0: you don't show up and everyone doesn't show up, like I've been to a few where it's like 20 people said yes and then there's five people
1: there. Real downer, yeah. That feature doesn't mean another feature, a leveler. Meaning, no matter your status or importance in society, anyone can go there. House party, you have to be invited. It's going to be people like you.
0: That actually was something, and this ties in again to my like unmoored and unsupported. When I was living in China, it was like that. It was a lot of the expat events, the expatriates, any of us that were there, we we're kind of a small community because like we were in Beijing and there's a lot of people there. Like I think it's basically, I think including undocumented people, it's about the population of Canada in one city, but there's probably only a couple thousand foreigners. So when somebody would throw an event, a lot of us would show up and some of them would be like interpreters or people that are dealing with like super high level CEOs and stuff. And then there's people like me who are just English teachers there and we're all intermingling and it's not really that important to your jobs because there's just more people to talk to finally because it's so difficult to speak to the
1: locals. Yeah, that encourages what Robert Putnam calls a bridging social capital. There's two different types. There's bonding and bridging. The bonding is like you're getting deep ties with your family because you're inviting them over for a lot of barbecues and dinners. But the bridging social capital is what you're describing describing there it's a mixing between different demographics and that's an important feature of a third place so that we're not kind of uh, siloed off in our demographic enclaves which then we start to not know each other not trust each other and then we get political polarization and the whole rest of it so
0: i mean i'm excited to be in a place near a place because i am a nomad obviously for a lot of my life at this point partially by necessity for economic reasons and i'm starting to approach a position where maybe i can finally start setting down roots and having a location And while there, I'm really looking forward to like getting involved in the civic side of things and kind of making events happen and bring people together, being a a connector, because it seems like we really need those things. And I guess they do exist sometimes, but like usually in very rigid networking, pro business kind of ways I find a lot of time or it's for a specific function, like not just getting together for the sake of getting together. I guess that's one way of marketing it.
1: And that's one of the features of a third place as well as describing before the neutral ground, the leveler. But he says that conversation is the main activity, so it's not for the... The purpose of we have to do this this fundraiser or something it's more like conversation is the main activity or
0: like dating or networking yeah and it's funny how i'm basically it's almost like i'm feeding these things to you
1: it's almost <laughs> as if we're in sync yeah sharing a single mind sharing a single mind via the cloud
0: yeah i was actually thinking because like i've talked about how i want to do the land project right and i think there's a city that it seems feasible for me to be near within a 30 minute drive which means that like what we could do is like host weekly events and have like a shuttle service like somebody could be at a certain location at a certain time and shuttle people out and just like have regular events, shuttle people back and forth once to the event and once away from the event because then it'll facilitate it, making it more accessible.
1: Accessibility, another feature of a third place. Yeah, it must be accommodating. And there's some other features of it. The regulars. I like this concept of the regulars, you know, the, the kind of cheers, place you can go where everyone knows your name.
0: Yeah. And that was something that we all kind of want, the place we can go. And everyone's like, hey, they're here. But I think a lot of us have never had that, I think, unless you were the charismatic person that everyone is the linchpin around. Like in Community, Jeff would be that character. Unless you are that person, you probably don't have a lot of places where showing up is like, hey, they're here, kind of thing.
1: Yeah, or if you're not there people notice
0: right yeah this actually is something that reminded me vaguely because the lack of that yeah if something happens and like i think they were talking about like if you fell in the tub somebody would notice that you didn't show up that week but it's similar to this is a random thought that living in the countryside you're more likely to die from accidental death than in the city partially because of i think being discovered and partially because of accessibility to healthcare. right so it's kind of something similar because like even if you live in a city but you're just going first and second places your work in your home then if you don't show up to work people will notice but if you fall or something happens on a friday then Maybe they'll notice, maybe they won't, depending on your job.
1: Yeah, yeah. So having a place where you are a regular, people ask when you haven't been there for a while. There's no obligation to be there every time. This was kind of casual in that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, if you consistently don't show up. Like, my dad has stuff like that around town. Like, there was steak night, and then there's, like, happy hour, and a bunch of stuff that, like, sounds so like of a different generation, because it is. But they have happy hour at, like, one of the local farmers, where a bunch of the guys just show up and talk and drink. So it's this. He's got third places here.
1: Yeah, yeah. There was quite a bit in the lodges in America.
0: Yeah, I mean, we should finish the overall profiles of a third place, but like there are things from Putnam I want to talk about.
1: Yeah. So other features, a uh, low profile, they're characteristically wholesome. <laughs> I don't
0: know how that's related to a low profile, but OK. Has a
1: homey feel. They're saying it's not snobby or pretentious and accepts all individuals. So that, that's kind of the accommodating piece there. You don't have to know certain rules of etiquette and politeness, which would be class exclusion or something like that.
0: Right. Yeah. Kind of like the thing I was saying about China or Beijing.
1: Right. Right the mood is playful so the conversations are not marked with tension or hostility so you're not going there to get angry and talk politics and religion and money you can talk those things but it's with a spirited playful tone i guess i don't know man like these
0: days that seems very difficult yeah i basically have to interview somebody and not say my opinion if we don't have general agreement and if i do that then that provokes them to talk about they feel more and more comfortable to talk about their more extreme views and if they do that that might set somebody else off in the setting so yeah generally best to avoid
1: yeah so it's not just the physical spaces are hard to find but when you are in a physical third place the culture is so tense right now it's hard to have that spirited tone.
0: Some people point to in the U.S. specifically about that being to do with I think it was Newt Gingrich did it where he said basically that people from the Senate and the House would spend more time with their own in the location of their constituents so that they would be more close to the people that they were actually serving which sounds good on the surface but then it ended up making them more and more polarized because now these officials from either party are no longer having any social interaction that has nothing to do with their job right. so there's no social greasing there's no social capital going on between them and so it just became more and more staunchly against each other so I think while politics is life and death a lot of the times, especially when it's like a slippery slope going towards what appears to be fascism if not outright that is a problem but the thing is those beliefs come from isolation and from alienation and without having these connections without talking about politics people are more likely to succumb to the dark side and that's a concern so I think while it is something that needs to be addressed eventually you have to get to a level of personhood with each other of like being jovial with each other like that one guy african-american dude that would show up and consistently talk to Klansmen and neo-nazis and he successfully de-radicalized many of them by just showing up and being a person and listening to their problems so while it is easy to dismiss these people like we talked about how incels like they're contemptible but at the same time they need support or also continue down this destructive path for all of us it's difficult (laughs) to see them as people just like they don't see the incels specifically don't see women as people and that is contemptible but we need to find a way to de-radicalize these elements or else we're gonna implode.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, so much of this conversation reminds me of the spirit of David Brooks and his <laughs> call for community. And I think that's why I like David Brooks is although he has more conservative views and, and economic ones that are aligned with conservatism, his social politics are very much in line with Robert Putnam and Ray Oldenburg.
0: The thing is he's what would be seen as probably a more reasonable conservative. He's a bit elitist and a bit like looks down his nose at like Ivory Tower or progressive people, it seems, just making up stories in his head. But I think like the Democrats in the States are basically what used to be reasonable Republicans at this point. So they're all on the right. I mean, it'd be nice if we could shift more to the left in general, or at least away from the extreme right. That would be a gift. But I I don't remember. I'm not going to endorse or condemn David Brooks. It's been a a bit since I've actually read his books or anything.
1: I watch him weekly on the PBS NewsHour, so I have a good feel of his current beliefs, not his old (laughs) <laughs> book from the 90s is that one from the 90s yeah. I thought it was oh I thought it was more recent it's like one of his early works it's hilarious though he wrote a book what's it called I
0: don't remember yeah <laughs> I was about to look it up, actually, because I can't remember what it was or when it was published. It also makes me think of Putnam. So we, we both reread Rubber Putnam. Well, you reread. I read for the first time Putnam's updated version of Bowling Alone. And it's just funny because he's he's constantly optimistic about things turning around. And it's like he wrote it. I think up to like I think it finished in the late 90s.
1: Bowling Alone comes out in,
0: in 2000. Wait, that's when it was released the first time? Yeah. Oh, wow. I always thought it was like a 70s or 80s book for some reason. But yeah, he's like, by 2010, we should be all together and things are going to
1: work out. Oh, I love it near the end of the book He's exactly. like, and my hope for... 2010 is that we have a society where we are less glued to our screens and more interacting with one another <laughs> i'm just laughing like yeah right yeah
0: like uh, okay then
1: like 2010 was the year the ipad came out was it not like we went the exact opposite direction wow. yeah
0: i keep finding that i'm looking back like to the 2000s and being like 2001 that's not that old and i'm like oh wait that's 20 years because I-, I watched a movie called conspiracy about the nazis making the choice about the final solution and it was dark as shit but it's categorized as a dark comedy so i, w- I was thinking it was more. More like The Death of Stalin but I was like oh it's not that old and then I was watching and I'm like every actor in here I know a lot of them and they're so young they're so much younger than I know them to be now but the books you were talking about were The Road to Character and The Second Mountain
1: yeah I like those ones from David Brooks okay
0: The Road to Character is 2015 so like that is much more recent than I thought and then The Second Mountain is 2019 so no they're, they're fairly recent yeah those, well, they're good books I don't know if he directly mentions that he oh no he does he left his wife for his assistant like that was the main thing that people slam him for because he's like a conservative who isn't super family focused he's not a perfect example of the things he espouses which i think is not entirely fair like people slip up people are human not to give him a pass that is not a very good move but i would say that doesn't disqualify all the points he's made outside of relationships no
1: exactly the book that we're talking about is not the road to character or second mountain it's a different one i can't find it
0: okay so the last thing we wanted to talk about here is the mood is playful and then finally the last element is a home away from home so in that that means that you feel it's like the same thing we're talking about it's like the same as saying that it was characteristically wholesome it's a place where you feel rooted in the space and gain spiritual regeneration by spending time there so like being there is a fulfilling act in itself just being around people sharing a drink having a laugh connecting with people and not judging or anything like that it's it's welcoming and people know you and you enjoy just
1: being there yeah the home away from home not being your work
0: yeah that i think is very precarious because like people get a lot of shit for that like in terms of like they have a christmas party or or something and get a little too drunk and say some shit that ends up coming back to bite them or they email something that is a joke a tongue-in-cheek joke but then it ends up being brought up to hr and they get fired for it like there's all this stuff it's just constant betrayal like because <laughs> it's a professional setting yet they're trying to tell you it's a home away from home or like this is your family but then they stab you in the back and it's like that just constantly destroys morale of course
1: that's a very real problem when people get fired, they feel like they were killed off like from their family. It's, it's real. Like
0: in The Office. The show, The Office, kind of like office propaganda. This is where a bunch of people that can sometimes barely stand each other, but are kind of like a family. They really, they're there for each other. But imagine that were the case, but then like Jim gets fired because he keeps constantly pulling pranks on Dwight. And it's just constant stuff like that where that guy would totally get canned. And then The Office would be punched in the gut emotionally as productivity would go down like crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, not wise. We're sustainable. It's nice to have kind of a connection at work, but if it's, yeah, the only thing that's precarious at
0: best. Yeah. So there was a very troubling point that Putnam points out, but doesn't actually go too far with. He he just basically points it out as a troubling thing, which was that the more accepting and open society was, the less cohesive it was in general. This is a theme that the right wing likes to pull with a lot and can take it to some very dark places. But he was saying that in general, over the trajectory of the time he was looking at, things became much more atomized, much more isolated, less community based, less fulfilling, less these third places, less social capital, everything moving in the negative direction that way. But it was much more accepting of race, of sexual orientation, of a bunch of stuff, of gender. All these things kept becoming more accepted. And so he wonders aloud, but doesn't state it firmly, but just sees it as troubling that this more accepting, by being part of a group, you tend to have in-group, out-group thinking, and you tend to define yourself in opposition to the things that are not part of your group. And so by having less cohesion in this way, we are more accepting, but we're more atomized. And so he points that out. This is like something that the solution to that would be which Jonathan high talks about, where it's like, if you draw a circle to exclude me, I will draw a bigger circle to include you. So having it instead of being like race based or economics based or job based, you would make it bigger, like maybe city based or country
1: based, something along those lines. And Jonathan Haidt talks about the function of community is two things, binding and blinding. And so binding is that binding social capital, the deeper social capital we were talking about. You get that. But the blinding component is that it can restrict bridging social capital and blind you to the other and therefore have more exclusion. And so it feeds one social need, but it makes us more atomized in one sense. And that's where the third place comes in as the solution, because it focuses on bridging components.
0: Oh, yeah. Right. Because it's not about your profile. It's not about status or judging. It's a leveler. Yeah,
1: And that's what's different between Putnam and Oldenburg. Putnam's describing the decline of like organizations. Like you're not going to the PTA or the Lions Club or, you know, the Knights of Columbus or whatever. You're not going to those types of organizations as much. But I don't know that although there's a decline of third places, it's also a solution that you can't necessarily find at the local church, which is going to be more people like you. Yeah, more exclusive. And so the third place, I think, is a really nice answer to that problem that you pointed out.
0: Yeah, I guess mixers or events. The thing is, like, I'm in a small town right now. Technically, it's a city, but it feels like a small town. There is maybe one or two, but there's not really a centralized place where people will have like regular events where, like, we have the occasional open air market. That would be one place where this would happen because there'd be vendors selling stuff and probably dancing and maybe some drinks. The thing about public drinking also is a thing that we're so behind on just because we hate homeless people here, it seems. Because it's like in China, I could grab a beer from the corner store and walk down the street drinking it. In Asia in general, that was a very nice thing. But here it's like if you try to do that, you have to put it in a paper bag, which is like basically the universal sign of being alcohol. But I guess they technically can't. No, for sure. So yeah, but like, the whole thing is very punitive and controlling.
1: Loitering laws and all that too.
0: Yeah. Putnam, I did want to also point out that a couple things that he pointed out. I'm pointing out what he pointed out of something that, because again, they talk about only bowling whenever they reference this book. But two of the things that stuck out to me were political parties. He was saying how political parties used to be a civic event. Like people would be volunteering. They'd be going as volunteers. They'd be going door to door, getting the vote out. They'd be canvassing. They'd be telling people stuff and promoting it. Like Bernie Sanders had actually. Because like, I remember when we were at was it Eastern Michigan University when your adjunct there, they had people volunteering and talking about Sanders and his platform. And he was actually much more popular than I thought because it was hard to tell because the media was basically against him and his own party betrayed him. But in general, that's how it used to be. But then, as he points out, it's kind of funny, Putnam, the political parties are being much more efficient by being much more financialized. But it's basically it's become a much more efficient political party, but removed people entirely, basically defeating the purpose.
1: Yeah. So relying on big mailing lists in terms of efficiency and getting the message out, but it's taking something important. Way.
0: Yeah. And how basically you can predict how a party is going to do based on how much money they have. So we've gone basically full plutocracy, aka more dollars equals more votes. The other parts I think he pointed out, which is I think generally related to what you just said, was that clubs used to have their head offices in cities where they had the most membership. And clubs in that time or organizations you're a part of meant showing up, meeting people, actually like congregating for a purpose or some sort of shared ideology, possibly like Greenpeace or something. And that's how it started. And they would have their head offices in the sp- places with the most membership but now basically all of them entail sending money signing a check never ever having probably gone to a meeting ever and all of their head offices are now located in the u.s at least in washington so it's just become a lobbying situation they're not actually like community endeavors anymore they're just there to change policy towards what they want so we've moved in a very wrong direction in a lot of these things
1: yeah in both bonding and bridging social capital
0: so i asked you i remember and i was embarrassed that i didn't come up with it myself what you see as the main cause behind this and i, I Actually, the more I think about it, the more I agree with what you had said. Yes, at that I think a
1: sociological diagnosis. I guess you can say. And what was that? It was that it
0: seems like a natural cycle of decadence. decadence. Like we were talking yes. about how the country in the West, at least, or America, maybe specifically, but I think a lot of the countries that came out ahead after World War II ended up doing really, really well because of the boom that the war ended up creating. And then they kind of took that for granted that this infinite growth forever would just be around. And as such, they started taking less long term views and just kept doing more and more selfish and, and greedy approaches to things. And then they got more affluent. And like I pointed out earlier, the more affluent you are, the more floor space you have but the more lonely you are and we kept degrading these things more and more like talking to my dad like me i've had to function through life by associations of trust and believing in people and actually having to just take their word on it not contractualizing things whereas with the boomers generation he actually pointed out that there's been an increase in lawyers and contractualizing everything because you can't trust anybody and listening to my dad talk about stuff he's like people are going to betray you you need to get in the contract you need to get in writing because if they just do anything then you're gonna be screwed and anytime i've ever listened to that it has undercut my relations with these people and endeavors and has basically become a self-fulfilling prophecy that not trusting them made them less trustworthy and made them trust me less. So I think that that's not just him. I think that's a common trend of that time. Why? I think maybe because institutions seem to help a certain group a lot more and the people they had to worry about were others who were trying to take from them. Whereas now it's like the institutions are failing, like I feel have failed me a lot of the time. So I've had to rely on individuals on a person by person basis and I can't rely on an institution to support me. So I kind of have to do this more impromptu, faith-based, trust-based relationships.
1: Yeah. And so as... The thriving grassroots civil society Putnam talks about really starts first turn of the 20th century. And it's coming out of difficult times where people were highly class segregated and kind of the industrial revolution of the kind of the grit and the dirtiness of the urban spaces. It was was really not a nice time before the turn of the century. So there's some growth there. And then Right in the middle of the 20th century, there's a second boom, which happens after you know, the post-war, you know, the first and second world wars. And so the 50s becomes this like major mid-century boom where society is kind of repairing itself. We're coming together to support one another, clubs are thriving, immigration's happening. And so there's a lot of these local ethnic-oriented spaces that are developing to support people who are coming into the country. And as things develop into the 80s, we don't need it so much anymore. We're just like kept yeah I
0: got mine you figure out your own shit I mean that's like anybody like I said who got what was promised to them by going through say finance they basically went to school they got a really high paying job and from then on I've never had to worry about shit they're the most like the boomers of our generation that I've met the most libertarian get off my lawn and let me just do whatever the hell I want I have enough money if you want it you should get your money which it's like yeah yeah we definitely don't live in a society anymore if that's the way we approach things but the troubling thing about that is that's what the right wing and this is very fascistic they think that the only way that we came together in that way because when we have prosperity and stuff. Stuff, people are going to start vying more for power, more division in the country, because that will gain them more power. Like look at Marjorie Taylor Greene or other shitheads that they cleave it as much as possible. They make the biggest, most outrageous thing, like the moral panic right now about trans people, which like get over it. But the thing is, that's a way that they are segregating and making an enemy to point at. And with the wars, they would say, I've heard people say that the only way to unify humanity is if like an alien species were to attack. That's a fascistic belief. You believe there must be a common enemy that we are all fighting against to get together. But that's so archaic and so barbaric that we must be fighting something else else we can't just want the betterment for everyone like i don't yeah
1: yeah you can bind people pretty fast by having a common enemy the question is do we need the common enemy and you're saying hopefully no we can just no i'm
0: saying we don't at all (laughs) but there are certain subtypes of personalities i think the more authoritarian subtypes that tend to be gravitating towards this because like things are not working out for me because basically the right wing has broken the system so much to favor the rich and powerful but then they're also saying like look things are bad for you but it's those foreigners those trans people people that are not you that are at fault and it's like, how the fuck are these disempowered people so powerful that they're threatening your whole situation? It makes no goddamn sense, but it's enticing because these people are looking to a strong man to figure things out. And if you think about it, like I've, I've thought about this when I had like a kind of existential crisis about AI that it's scary and it's fast and it's hard to predict where things are going. And I can see it. I was just more using it to relate to the right wing, although I really still don't like the idea. But having somebody step up and say, I understand all this. I have figured all this out. This is a solution and we're going to move in that direction. Everyone get behind me. It's appealing. Yeah, because it's like you don't have to think the solution is just being handed to you. And that's hypnotic to a lot of people. Yeah,
1: yeah, And so rather than having a common enemy, hopefully we can do it through shared values and perhaps shared values like the ones we're talking about here. Well, the other problem is that the
0: right wing mentality tends to be very hierarchical. The hierarchy is here forever and will never go away. And anybody that says they want to get rid of the hierarchy is merely saying that they want to shuffle the deck and take the top and put them at the bottom. And the people at the top are just like, well, shit, like I don't want to be treated the way I treat everybody else. So I better lock this down. And that's pretty much the problem with the shared values is like that fundamental core value that everything is always hierarchical. It's hard to get around. Like, how do you get around that if that's what people believe that people inherently want to, like, enslave you if they had the option? Like, they're not going to come around very easily. Finally, there's a lot we didn't cover for third place as we we're running out of time. But the car has freedom. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, there's a freedom component to it. The freeway, I guess it has the name in it.
0: Yeah, but Nazis are also socialist in name. Or the Congo is democratic in name. And so is North Korea.
1: Well, without a car, I would have dramatically less freedom.
0: Why would that be? Though
1: (laughs) That's not the core problem, though. The core problem is that we've designed our cities in ways that require us to have cars to be free,
0: not even our cities, all of our settlements, basically, like I live in a small town, you do too. like, I guess yours is small enough, you can walk. But if you want to get say something that isn't immediately available, you have to drive at least a half hour, probably, right. Mm -hmm. And I see the cars as actually a ball and chain, like it's a multi thousand dollar product that is depreciating in value that is not really an asset, because it just keeps going down and down in value and it's just a money sink that pushes poison into the air or was constructed with basically slave labor from like the components to make batteries and also you need to have it to show your age sometimes for some places yeah, a lot of places you need to have that like the fact that it's a requirement means it's not freedom to me Like, well, yeah
1: it gives you kind of access but is it real freedom
0: well yeah because like if we had a better system you would have access without a car the
1: car yep, yep you know exactly
0: yeah there's an example I want to bring up before we go it's Copenhagen Copenhagen was a city that actually was I think very similar to to North America in their car centrism. And they decided, I think in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, I think they decided they were going to make it more, they were calling it pedestrianizing. So they made it that there was no cars downtown at all. They made it so it was all walking streets. And the thing is, like a lot of people that love Europe and think how great Europe is because it's got a lot of walking streets because the way that the city was structured was way before cars were even a thought. And people are like, oh, that's great, but we couldn't do it here. Copenhagen is exactly the example of how that's not true. North America, especially the US, was very much railways and getting around that way before and then they just basically tore all that up and made a bunch of ugly shitty highways that just keep eating money that way and people always talk about how we can't invest in infrastructure because it's too expensive it's just going to lose money how much do you think maintaining roads costs and how much money is that actually getting us in comparison and like yeah okay we're wasting tons of money on cars and on fuel on the maintenance of these roads but like we're not getting that much more in return other than poisonous gas in the air constantly. So it can be done. The political will needs to be there. And we talking about this now is because there is some more political will. A final point that I have is that the conspiracy theories around 15 minute cities. So 15 minute cities are like basically something that we haven't directly pointed out, but basically I've talked about this entire time of getting all your needs fulfilled within 15 minutes of biking or or riding. And I only first heard about this specific term from conspiracy theorists who believe that you will get fined or have some sort of legal penalty for leaving your 15 minute sphere. But that's not what it means. It just means that everything is accessible. And so it's funny that I only came across this because of the reaction against it, because it was talked about in the World Economic Forum, I think. And so anything talked about there automatically is bad to a lot of people on the right. But it's just so stupid. It's like, hey, we want to make it so you have more community, more convenience. Life is just generally better where you live. And they've taken that and said they want to make an open air prison where you can't go anywhere. Like you're just too happy that you don't want to leave. It's the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And the only thing that I think is more relatable is that I think these people, I've been trying to understand them, these people kind of see this the same way that I kind of see Google campuses. Google campuses, they actively try to discourage you from leaving by making you so that you date on campus, you have all your gym on campus, your fun on campus. They try to make their entire campus kind of like a third place, I guess, but it is your job. It is your job. So it's your first and your second place because you live on campus, you work there, you socialize there. To me, that's tyrannical because it's a corporation that's able to see everything you're doing especially through algorithms and like monitoring and try to dissuade you from leaving that's a problem it is but here's the problem people see cities in the same way simultaneously these people seem to think that the government is utterly inefficient but also capable of doing the same thing that google is doing like they (laughs) they just don't want you to leave they want everything to be in the city it's it's tyrannical and it's like where do you see the cleft between these things yeah it's ironic how are they different though because they're both trying to make it so you're happy in the place you are and you
1: don't need to leave yeah you lose your job you not only lose your work family but you lose your actual home. Yeah, oh, that's a good point, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess like it's all tied to one job. It's like the extreme version of the states where like healthcare, your life is tied to your job. Yeah.
1: So if you lose your job, you lose healthcare, your work family, your actual family maybe. <laughs>
0: Yeah, in the city, I guess if you lose your job, you aren't immediately booted out. You can own your own property. The way I saw it was also that like government, it's closer to inefficient than efficient. And they would have a lot of backlash to them monitoring citizens in the same way that Google gets away with. Corporations basically are like at this point, especially ones like Google, are basically like small constitutionless governments that can do whatever they want and have done whatever they
1: want. Yeah. And so the concept of social capital, again, don't want to put it all in one basket. (laughs) You don't want to put your home, work and social life all in the same thing. You want to spread your chips around a little bit. And third places are a nice way to do that.
0: Yeah, get a social index, like an index fund. So what do you want to say to close us off? Is there anything you want to add to this? I guess we could recap the main features.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because we didn't even talk about, is social media a way to recreate the virtual third place?
0: Yeah, MMOs, I think, were one. talk. Just about to them.
1: quickly answer that, Ray Oldenburg clearly says no. And it's virtual for a reason. Virtual means it's it's like it, it's not actually it. And so he's seeing no uh, virtual spaces are not a replacement. What I think is that they could facilitate actual third place gatherings though, because if you go on something like meetup.com, you can actually find different gatherings. And so they can be a, a tool that is used to connect people, but not necessarily a full replacement. It could be a substitute replacement. Maybe it's better than nothing to have like be a part of a group online. That
0: I think that issue too, is that like when it comes to say a zoom meeting for one there's lag so if someone starts speaking like the latency becomes an issue because someone starts speaking the other ones didn't hear it and they start speaking so they keep having this like false starts on both sides as well everyone in that meeting hears you and i think if you wanted to make it more social i've thought about like a fun experiment where it's for one you'd have to be able to make it so that multiple people could possibly speak over each other or like the latency is so low that it wouldn't be an issue but the other feature is you can like create a sidebar where you can very low volume Hear that the other people are talking, but then you can talk and then they can hear you at very low volume elsewhere. So it's kind of like you're in the same room, but like you've kind of brought you and one or two or whoever the small group of people away from the main group. They're talking about something big and then you're, you have an idea. So you bring some person aside and start whispering to them like in a meeting like, yeah, I kind of like that idea. Maybe not for professional context, but more for social ones, perhaps.
1: Maybe the metaverse will do that where you can like walk around with our avatars and then you can like kind of be walking further away and the volume goes down.
0: Maybe. I think that's going to die in the vine. The tech's not there yet and I don't think people are really gunning for more online communication after the pandemic I don't
1: think so it's something for sure probably not a replacement I guess the danger of it being something is that oh it's good enough and we just kind of stop trying for actual (laughs) in person
0: it's like my uncle who said why would I go somewhere I could just look at pictures of it and I'm like (laughs) right good enough yeah like okay yeah like standing on a mountain and being in awe of how beautiful and huge it is versus a photo that captures like a very small segment of that like yeah they're the same thing
1: I could go on Google Street View like why would I actually go there I can like drive around on the street view and google like
0: yeah the energy in the air and the feeling of people around and saying hi to people that doesn't matter don't worry about it yeah So I just want to like recap. The main features of A Third Place are that it's neutral ground. It's a leveler. So like everyone's on the same level. Conversation is the main activity that you're having to go there for. It's accessible and accommodating, meaning that it provides for the wants of the people that go there. They feel fulfilled. There are regulars. It's low profile and not snobby or pretentious. The mood is generally playful and it's like a home away from home. There's no obligation to be there. You're there by choice.
1: Yeah. And I want to say a quote by Ray Oldenburg, who summarizes it quite nicely. He says, what suburbia cries for are the means for people to gather easily, inexpensive, regularly, and pleasurably. A place on the corner. Real life alternatives to television. And Ray himself actually did this and he turned his garage into a bar. <laughs> Because living in kind of a suburbia environment, he created his own third place, actually. And he operated this even throughout the pandemic until he died, actually, just back in November. Oh,
0: wow. I wonder, well, one, in Canada, it'd be hard to do that because you need a liquor license. But I wonder if, like, I remember in university, there was a way to get around that where they'd have a keg party. You're not going to buy beer. You're either donating money to the house for maintenance and stuff, or you're buying a cup. You're not buying the beer. The beer gets in the cup repeatedly, but you're buying the cup. Right. That's the way. Because like you can't make money from selling alcohol so I'm wondering if maybe that's an alternative I've, I've considered I don't it. think
1: he actually was selling it. I think he was just being a really good host he, he says in some interviews just like invite people and family other people around the street like he was just kind of a place where people can pop in and he would just be a host actually so pretty interesting and he never gave up on it through the isolation of the pandemic and it's sad to hear he passed really recently
0: I oh follow his example and carry his spirit on let's say that carried on yeah all right all right this is a good talk it's been a while hopefully we can get a couple more out there and then we can start releasing again although if you're hearing this (laughs) we will already be releasing yes All all right talk to you next time and thanks for
1: tuning in bye dust off the old pop filter